Hello and welcome to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. Thank you for joining me for this true crime episode. Again, I'd just like to reiterate what I said on my previous episode, that this has been recorded uh, quite a few weeks or months in advance. And it's just because I'm having a lot of mouth surgery done. And I also have um, quite a number of assignments coming up as well. The case I'm covering today is one that always baffles me slightly and also show humans true resilience. I've been recently listening to the podcast I Survived as I've never been able to get to catch the show in Australia. I'm truly amazed by some of the stories that the victims have actually come through. And even though they could have just given into the pain and suffering, they still pulled through because they wanted to be alive so much. If you have any time, please try and give it a listen. It is actually really awesome. This is no way sponsored at all. The case I'm going to be covering today is the case of Carol Smith, the woman in the box. Just to let you know, Carol Smith is not actually her real name. Since the traumatic events that happened to her, she has actually been really allowed to be kept anonymous by the media and the courts to protect her from any further trauma. So I will be referring to her as Carol all the way through this episode. Twenty-year-old Carol was living in the small town of Eugene in Oregon. She left her house one normal morning of 1977 to visit her friend who lived in Westwood, California, whose birthday she was going to go to celebrate. This was a significantly different time to the present day, and people regularly hitchhiked to get to places that were far away. This was beneficial to the driver and passenger as they shared the cost of fuel and the company for the long drives. It was a 400-mile trip Carol wanted to undertake, and she walked down Interstate 5 to hitch a ride. However, tragically, Carol chose the wrong car, or rather, the right car chose her. After four days with no news from Carol, her friends who lived in the same town rang her family to see if they had heard anything but neither had. We have to also remember that now, nowadays we are living in a time where we can instantly contact our loved ones and friends. We can contact them through text message. We can contact them on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok. We can see them on a variety of apps. We can even track them on apps such as Find My Friends or Live360. But in the 1970s, this was a time where people had to use pay phones or hope that the person that they were visiting had a landline. But even after four days, it was a long time for Carol not to contact her friends or family. Her family contacted her friend in California and discovered that Carol had actually never made it to Westwood. An alarm bell started to ring. The fact that Carol had not contacted anyone at all was unusual. She would have contacted someone to let them know where she was. But for now, nobody knew where she was at all. Her friends in Eugene filed a missing persons report with a local police department. But in all honesty, there was not much more that they could do. Carol was 20 years old. She was an adult. 
She could go missing if she wanted to. The first suspect in Carol's disappearance was her ex-husband. She previously was married when she was just 17, but the marriage did not last long. However, he was very easily ruled out. And the police were left stumped as they had no more leads. As times passed, with still no sign or contact from Carol, the hope began to fade for her friends and family. Her case grew cold and her family members started to believe that she had been murdered and the likelihood of them ever finding her would be next to non-existent. Then came the most amazing development. More than two years after Carol had disappeared in 1979, her two sisters received a letter from her. It was very short, but full of affection. She had informed them that she had met a man called, quote unquote, Michael, during her travel to California, and that she had settled down with him, and they were not to worry. She also apologized in the letter that she had not let them know or not been in touch more. Her family believed that these letters were genuinely from Carol. They matched her writing style and her handwriting, and they breathed a sigh of relief when they received these, as before they believed that she was gone. Now, most of my true crime listeners would automatically feel that a killer had made Carol write these letters before they killed her and then set them on later on. This is something that I would certainly feel skeptical of. However, I must again remember and remind you that these were different times and people were more likely to believe letters as methods of reasonable correspondence. Also, sitting in the present day, we have amazing hindsight and plenty of cases that have had the killer who has made people write letters before they have killed their victim. But there has been other times where people have let their victims write to their families. However, I am willing to be wrong in this situation. As three years later, Carol's family and friends finally got to see her again. She did not divulge anything about her new life to her family, but she was visibly happy about seeing them again. Her family and friends were naturally curious about what she had been doing during the five years that she had been away. But they felt that when she left, they must have somehow offended her all those years ago which made her run away and start a new life. And they really didn't want to offend her again and lose her again. So they didn't press her for many details of her personal life and just really allowed her to leave the conversation and also allowed her to leave the house to go back to Michael. But perhaps if they had pressed her, she might have just let one of them know that in fact, her life had been a living nightmare. Carol had managed to hitchhike all the way to Red Bluff on the day that she left Eugene. 
and she had amazingly only had another 50 miles to go to make to her friends in Westwood. She was looking for her next ride to take her the final stretch when a blue Dodge Colt with a family in it pulled up and offered her a lift. The clean cut couple had their baby with them in the car and she felt that if a woman and child were in the car, then nothing could go wrong. But as the car drove away, she began to feel increasingly uneasy. Something she says felt wrong about the Hooker family. She couldn't put her finger on it, but when they stopped at a gas station to fill up, she very nearly did not get back into the car. The only reason she said that she did is because they did not push her to get back in and they were really nice to her. And this made her feel ashamed and this ultimately was her last chance to get a ride that day. However, that stop at the gas station was also her last chance to escape from them that day. When they pulled out of the station, they made a detour to some ice caves as it was on their way. And when they pulled to the side of the road, the man held a knife to her throat and told her to do everything she said. He said if she wanted to live. Carol told him yes, as she was desperately afraid. But this one word both destroyed a few years of her life. Also, it saved her whole life. In the car, she was then bound, blindfolded and gagged. Her head was locked in a soundproof plywood box and this nearly suffocated her with the weight of it. Then her body was put into a sleeping bag and laying across the back seat of the car. After many hours when the Hooker family returned home, she was moved into a large wooden box in the cellar of their house. The man Hooker would take her out of the box regularly to torture her physically or mentally torture her by leaving her to dangle by her wrists on the ceilings for hours. Other times, she would be left in the box for days on end with a bedpan to relieve herself. During this time, she was fed one meal every other day. But when it was apparent that her health was deteriorating rapidly, Hooker and his wife started to feed her one meal per day. After breaking Carol, during these endless days and nights of torture. Hooker made Carol sign what he called a legally binding contract with the slave company, which was a registered entity who could see everything. And if Carol tried to run away, they would kill her family. The contract was a master slave relationship contract, and this would feed into Hooker's strong desire to control and own a slave. Over the years of mental and physical torture that Carol was exposed to, the constant reminders from Hooker that the slave company was watching her, her mind gave way and she started to believe it all. After Hooker started to see the way Carol's mind was altered and her behaviour diminished her to slave duties, her life became marginally easier. She was given handiwork to complete She was allowed to live in a cage under the stairs rather than the wooden box in the cellar. She was allowed in the yard for some fresh air during the weekends. The neighbours of the couple even saw Carol walking round in the yard. And because of her placid and calm demeanour and the way that she interacted with their children, they thought that she was their nanny. She was allowed to go jogging alone 
and eventually she was allowed to write home to let her family know that she was okay. However, she was informed by Hooker what she was allowed to write, and he made sure that she did not give away her location or his or his wife's name. This is where that letter came through to Carol's family, telling them that she was with someone called Michael, because that is the name the hooker allowed her to write. The wife hooker would take her on nights out, and when hooker was driving through Oregon, he actually took her to visit her family. When Carol returned to the car after the visit, Carol was returned to captivity for another three and a half years. Cameron and Janice Hooker had a hold on her mentally and physically. It was totally and utterly consuming. I can only start to imagine slightly how Carol was feeling. Her mind had been altered into a survival mode and she clearly retreated into herself. I only have a small where I can relate to this. When you're under such coercive control from an abusive partner, you learn how to self-check yourself to make sure that you're doing all the things that would make them happy and what not to do to get any backlash from them. So you're constantly checking yourself, you're constantly monitoring your behavior. Sometimes you will obviously do the wrong thing in their mind. Like Carol, she did things sometimes that were wrong and she got put back in her box again. I could only imagine what Carol was experiencing would have been this self-checking behavior all the time but it would have been turned up to the absolute maximum when you're trying to protect yourself being alive and also under the belief that someone else was watching you and so then you're protecting your family's lives as well. In the end, it was jealousy that was Carol's freedom. Cameron Hooker had started to have sex with Carol and Janice became jealous. She confessed to her pastor and the pastor called the police. And then when the police arrived at her church, she took them to the remains of an earlier victim who had not been as compliant as Carol and had been shot through the abdomen and left to bleed to death. The plan to capture a slave for Cameron had been something that he had wanted to do. When he met and married Janice, she was only 16 years old. And it is to be believed that he brainwashed her and manipulated her the way that he did to Carol. The difference was that she was his wife and not locked away in a box. But the mental box could have easily have been the same. Cameron had always promised Janice that when he had his slave, he would never have sex with them. He just wanted to have complete control over a woman. He would physically torture Carol and then have sex with Janice on top of the box that Carol was kept in. While this was going on, Janice felt comfortable in her position as wife. 
She was above Carol in her mind as she was free, had Cameron's children, and also was the only one who had sex with him. However, as time passed and Carol started to be given freedom, Janice started to feel the pangs of jealousy. But she had reminded herself of her children and her one ace card that she was still the only one having sex with her husband. The children became comfortable with Carol in the house and in the yard. They would interact with her and believe that she was part of their family. This again was something that bothered Janice, but not to the point where she felt jealousy where she wanted to tell someone about Carol. When Carol called, told Janice on one of their nights out drinking that she was permitted to go on, that Cameron was raping her, this was the time where Janice felt that her position was threatened. Janice asked Cameron not to have sex with Carol again, as that was her place in the family. This was his biggest mistake and the one that led to his arrest. He dismissed her concerns and told her that he would continue to do so because Carol was his slave and he could do what he liked. This was the straw that broke the camel's back and led Janice to her pastor. Due to the young age that Janice was when she was married to Cameron, the court believed she was too a victim. She plea bargained and she was actually set free. Nothing else is known about her because she was so young when she was taken by Cameron and become his wife. We have to believe that maybe she was put through the same things as Carol, but she never actually admitted it. It is something that I think we forget that humans are still children at the age of 16. Your brain has still not finished developing at the age of 16. There are still nerves, neurons, pathways that have not developed yet. And to have someone manipulate you when you are that young can only change those pathways. And that is all she knew from that young. So, of course, she was going to believe Cameron over anybody else. After this, Cameron Hooker was arrested and he was sentenced and went to trial. Cameron Hooker did plead not guilty as he said that Carol had signed his contract to say that she was happy to be his slave even though Janice had testified that Carol was coerced. Essentially in the end Cameron Hooker was sentenced to life in prison but the trial was not a simple slam dunk trial. It was a close run right to the end and this was highly due to the fact that Carol showed no signs of hostility to Cameron, her former captor of over seven years. But it's believed that the physical scars of her torture that swung the jury and the remains of a previous victim that Janice led the police to. After so many years of horrifying cruelty, justice was done and Carol was essentially given her freedom. 
due to the effects of what is now known as Stockholm Syndrome. It is believed that Carol would not have seen her captors as anything bad for many years. Her mind had been so altered that she would have had the effects of their cruelty for years. Thankfully, in this case, the court and the media have kept Carol's identity private and hidden. And after all she has been through, I think this is the least that they could have done. The fact of Carol agreeing to do everything and the fact that she actually survived shows just how much resilience she had through all of this. As such a young woman of 20 years old, I know she'd gone through a marriage and everything beforehand, but she was still a very young woman. That is an amazing thing to come out of this. Yes, she would have been incredibly, incredibly affected and had post-traumatic stress disorder through all of this because I think it would be weird if she didn't. But the fact that she did come through it just shows how amazing her resilience is. I think it's absolutely unbelievable. I know Stockholm Syndrome is a really big thing. It's something that did come about fairly recently and it is an actual true phenomenon. I will actually like to cover where the meaning of Stockholm Syndrome comes from in the future because I think it gives a basis for why we use it so often in these situations. I hope that Carol came out positively after a lot of therapy. And even if she still has some of those effects, like anybody who does suffer with any sort of post-traumatic stress disorder, suffers with some effects, she has the tools to get her through it. Carol, I think you are amazing. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. I hope this was this case was interesting to see how different victimology can be shown. If you have any questions, please send me an email on macabreformortals at gmail.com. And alternatively, if you have any suggestions for any future episodes, please give me an email as well. Please join me next time for a much lighter episode. And wherever you are in the world, please try and stay safe.